Angelo shoots it deflected right in. Peter Angelo save rebound. Nasty stop by Peter Angelo. I don't believe that save. Neither does Peter Nasty. He can't believe the save that Peter Angelo just made on him. As Frankie sparkling on that maneuver there to stop and rob Peter Nasty. He should get five to ten for that. Hello and welcome to episode 49 of Tendy Talk, presented by the BLPA and the Hockey Podcast Networks. I'm your host, Joe, better known as Wash Up Goalie on social media. This week I chat with the all-time AHL wins by an American-born goalie, Mike McKenna, who played 14 years professional hockey with 22 teams in the NHL, AHL, and ECHL. Mike and I cover a whole slew of topics from his recent bike trip across the state of Missouri the best food city he's visited as a player, and so many more topics. So, without further ado, let's get to the conversation with Mike. Mike, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's, uh, it's a, I have to say, it's a thrill to have you on. As a goalie who, um, I felt like I had to work harder than the other goalies. You probably felt the same way where... Uh, you know, it's just really fun to connect with you. And uh, at the same time, I, I'm a Chicago born kid. So talking to <laughs> St. Louis, I have a few teammates from down that way. Some of them you probably know because we're about the same age. So uh, yeah, the, the Chicago St. Louis rivalry is always fun as well. Well, I remember those games at the old arena in St. Louis, you never knew what was going to happen. I mean, yeah, absolutely. The Blackhawks would show up and I mean, it really, it was, it was Detroit and Chicago. And I feel like those three teams really were kind of interchangeable in the rivalries that they had that you had to have your head on a swivel in the stands even because yeah. you didn't know if the fights were going to break out. And, um, you know, it's funny because like, I think so many people become so tribalistic about their cities and mm-hmm. obviously like I'll sit here and, oh, I can't stand the Cubs. And I mean, like, honestly, I, I really don't care. Like I, I mean, I don't even have Bally sports this year because they quit on YouTube TV. So I haven't watched a baseball game all year, but yeah, you know, it was kind of the same way. That's like, as a kid, I thought, you know, I can't stand the Blackhawks and blah, blah, blah. And then like, as you get older, you really realize how much I appreciated watching Ed Belfort when I was a mm-hmm. kid, like just how, like so many things that he did that were pretty new and different to the position, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, and when, especially later on, like, I remember when he went into the hall of fame, I wrote a piece for Ingle magazine that was a tribute to him being inducted and it just kind of came back in waves you know like that whole era of our childhood and like just how much all those goaltenders and teams in general you know you hated the Blackhawks but man you were so excited for those games when they came into town yeah it's funny you say that because I hated Curtis Joseph with a passion for obvious reasons he was a Blackhawk killer but as I look back on it I always appreciated his play Uh, it was just he played he, he wore the wrong laundry (laughs) <laughs> you know that's right that, that was the wrong gitch yeah yeah it, you know but it it's just so funny like curtis joseph same thing i just i hated or not curtis it was felix Potvin. just hated him because he yeah. he was a blackhawk killer but you know now there's such but he had the best mask in the league man <laughs> no he didn't eddie belfort did i i will die on that that hill um but it was dark yeah his mask was pretty sweet and you know he was one of the early early ones, you know, with his own graphic on a pad too, with, with those cat pads. It was just awesome. Uh, but it, it is funny. And I've heard you on your podcast, Six Degrees, talk about, you know, you reach a certain point where, yeah, you have your team, but you've either, in your case, you know enough guys on different teams, but you reach a certain level where you're just a fan of the game. 
Yeah. You know, you want a good game, and, and that's more important than if my – well, I shouldn't say it. When the Blackhawks were in the Stanley Cup Finals, I absolutely wanted them to win. But I'm sure, yeah. yeah. Well, it, it's a different dynamic when you go off. I mean, you leave home at 16 years old. Yeah. Like I did, you know, to play junior hockey. And then I'm at college, and then I get – I play 14 years of pro and get paid by whatever, 13 or 14 different organizations. <laughs> and, like, you just – you lose that loyalty and hometown draw. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you're not going to walk around if you're if you're getting paid by the let's say Florida Panthers, in your spare time, you're not walking around in a St. Louis Blues hat. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like you just you become agnostic to teams in general, and especially because I ended up having friends all around the league. I'm I'm rooting for my friends to just do well, and right. I just want to watch good hockey. And you know, I even had people who felt like it was disappointing that when the blues won the Stanley cup, that I didn't have this like deep rooted connection where I was turning handsprings in the, from the front yard, you know? And I was like, no, man, I just like, I'm super happy that they won. I still have like that hometown thing, but it was more so like happy for my friends that really got to revel in this. And, and for me, it was almost kind of like, it was almost nostalgic for me looking back at my childhood when I was such a fan of that team and thinking of, you know, my dad and grandpa and and everybody that used to go to games. And uh, it just, it hit very differently for me. Um, It was still cool, but you're right in that. Like now I just, I don't have a dog in the fight anymore. It feels like, you know, I'm just a fan of goalies first and hockey second. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, I like that you brought up your grandpa because if anybody's listened to any of your podcasts or any of the stuff you've been on, you know, he was an off ice official back when they had gold judges in the NHL. Uh, something I wish they would bring back just for the nostalgia of it. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, when you grew up, hockey wasn't as big as it is now in St. Louis. But because of your grandpa, you were exposed to the game. And that's clearly how, how you um, uh, were interested in it. Yeah. You know, I, I got to think down there from what I know of my teammates that are from there, you know, you had what, maybe two ice rinks. You had Kirkwood and Afton. Oh no, we had quite, a, we probably had 20 something sheets when I was a kid. Oh really? I didn't yeah, realize yeah. there were that many. Yeah. Hockey was really on the cusp of growing. Um, but a lot of it, you know, were outdoors. They were, you know, we yeah. had chain link fences at some of them. Like <laughs> it's not like it is now where you walk in, it's the Taj Mahal to hockey at these places. Like they just built a new three and a half sheet or f- three sheet in the winter or in the summer, four sheet in the winter rink here in St. Louis, Centene community ice center that the blues helped build in Maryland Heights. And this place is just immaculate. Mm-hmm. You know, and I grew up playing outdoors with chain link fences and no roof, right? You'd have to shovel the snow. Like, yeah. it just, and I understand this is old guy talk and I'm 38. Like it's yeah. imagine being like my grandpa who started when you had to shovel, literally shovel the lake if you wanted to skate, you yeah. know, like this is how it's changed. And, you know, when I was a kid, there were 50 something high school teams mm-hmm. and that's the same way, you know, but like really none of us really thought going beyond high school hockey was realistic because that's all people had done from St. Louis when I was mm-hmm. a kid. Yeah. Nobody played in the NHL. Nobody, I mean, very few players had gone even to college hockey at that point. Nobody knew how to get there. And I mean, we were just playing for the fun of it. I played two years of high school hockey, yep. you know, I mean, and that was huge for me. I got to play in front of my school, like my classmates. I, I played in front of a crowd. I got to play against older competition. You know, I made it as a freshman. I'm 13 playing against 18 year olds. Like, these are like men compared to me, you know, (laughs) and now like at that age group, right. You're thinking, Oh my God, like these guys can shoot. And that was a huge step for me playing varsity hockey as a freshman, you know, and I look back at it now and it's like the hockey isn't great at all. 
but man, it was cool. It, it was sure fun. felt that way and when it we was, were that age, though. Yeah, and it was competitive. Like people gave a shit, you know. Yeah, and that's really what mattered. I remember I was a was I a, I I think I was a peewee. Yeah, it was my second year playing, and I I was playing house league hockey. And for whatever reason, our coach entered us into a travel tournament in Pekin, Illinois. Um, I'm sure you're Played familiar with any tournaments in Peoria Pekin. Yep. Yeah. And we were playing the Afton Americans and they were just smoking everybody in this tournament. And we're like, Oh boy, our final game is against Afton. We are just going to get it handed to us. Mm-hmm. And somehow we kept it to single digits. And after that game, it was just like, you know, the handshake, we, you know, the kids were like, Hey, you guys played really, cause everybody knew we were the house league team in this tournament. Right. And, you know, those kids were coming up to us like, Hey, you guys said, really, you know, you did, you played well, but I still remember how good that Afton team was all these years later. And it was yeah. like, Afton was always, I honestly don't know if I ever beat Afton as a kid, <laughs> you know? And like, I ended up playing in the NHL, but I couldn't beat Afton. You know, yeah. I thought I was going anywhere because I couldn't beat Afton. And then, and, and in goal, like, here's the thing, like people will think this about goaltenders is kind of like a selfish or egotistical thing. When we say like, I couldn't beat. Well, guess what? The columns uh, for goalies are wins, losses, and ties. Right. So you know what? We can say that. It's okay to say that. That's not yeah. braggadocious in any way. I couldn't beat them. And then like in college, I couldn't beat Cornell. Yeah. Like I couldn't. And then I get to pro. Man, I couldn't beat Hershey. You know, they just <laughs> waxed me endlessly, it felt like. And then in, it, and then the NHL, I couldn't beat the Caps, you know? Like there's, there's always, always that boogeyman team out yeah, there. Absolutely. But there's always that team that you just – for whatever reason, you perform well against them. Oh, college, dominate. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it was Augsburg College for me. Whenever we played them, especially in their barn, I don't know why. I just had a game. <laughs> I was so good in a couple buildings, especially in the American Hockey League. Anybody that followed my career knows that that's where really I made most of my living. You know, yeah. I was a number three goaltender. I've never made any bones about being more yeah. than that. But man, I hardly ever lost in Syracuse. Like, I was. So good. And I think it's because I loved playing there. Like those old shitty rinks to me are so much fun. I loved playing there. And then I got to play for them. We had to go, go into the Calder Cup finals. Like awesome. And another rink was Adirondack when that was the Phantom. So when it was the Flyers there, mm-hmm. man, I just, I never lost there. And ironically, that's where my wife's from. So I always have my in-laws there. And <laughs> like, I, I mean, I tell you, you get a first or a second star in that building. You just go take a huge victory lap before you come off. And <laughs> like, you know, the one year I was playing for Albany, we played in Adirondack ton. It's only like 45 minutes away. And if we played there on a Saturday night and had Sunday off, I'd just stay there Saturday night. My <laughs> wife would come and we'd stay at her, in, at her parents, you know, and have a day. Yeah. Like it's, it, it, people wonder why I enjoyed the minor leagues. Yeah. Like that's, that's a great example, reason. man. Like it just crazy shit happened in the minors. Sometimes <laughs> you really, as I guess, as dysfunctional as it could be. And, and frankly, as heartbreaking as it could be at times when mm-hmm. like, you know, you deserve a call up, but there's no chance you're getting it because you're not a prospect that happened a couple times for me. Yep. It just was fun, man. Like yep. it, it didn't have the same level of intensity that the NHL was. And I don't know. I just, I had so much fun playing it. And I really enjoyed it. There, there's a reason they made a movie about it in the late seventies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that's, it's changed a bit, but man, yeah. like, you know, when I first started playing, it was 2005 and we, I mean, we didn't have the Hanson brothers, but 
we had some three ring circuses, yeah. man. Like it, that really, the fighting in hockey and the brutality aspect, especially in the minors, it sold tickets and all yep. those teams in Texas well, and all those teams, like people just wanted to see blood, dude, period. Look at that new and, documentary about Danbury, you know? Yeah, pe- people wanted blood. And yeah. I think that that's really been the downfall to a lot of minor league cities is that they just, the fighting isn't there any longer. Mm-hmm. And people wanted to see blood and guts and gore and veins in my teeth and everything Arlo Guthrie talked about in Alice's restaurant that you can hear every Thanksgiving at noon. It's just, that's different now, you know, yeah. it's pure hockey, which I mean, I love, I, I, I don't need the fights, but like, I, there's still nothing like two guys getting so pissed at each other that they drop the gloves and go. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I just I don't need the sideshow any longer where it's two guys go out and prance around and drop their gloves and have a yeah. fight for no reason. You know, it needs to be organic for me. Yep, absolutely. And it, you mentioned some of those old barns growing up in Chicago. I went to quite a few Chicago Wolves games at the I still call it the Rosemont Horizon. Oh, I'll say I was arena. terrible in that building. I couldn't win there either. <laughs> I, I got the chance to play there in high school and it even though that was what I'll call a home building for me. I don't know. There's just something about it. I didn't like the sight lines were really goofy in there. Uh, It's dark. Yeah. It's it's very dark. dark. It's very hot. And Um, it's always raining fireworks material when we're playing there as pros. And that's never fun. Not to mention the uh, jets flying overhead, landing at O'Hare airport next door. I mean, (laughs) there's those moments in the game where you just hear the play and you're like, are we going to feel the impact or are they going to land at the airport? I, 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 like this will sound so like, maybe I've got a lot of hubris saying this, but I never heard that because we have a crowd in there too. Yeah. <laughs> but it that was loud. And that the rumor was that always that the wolves pumped in crowd noise. And we never knew if that was true or not, but we're pretty sure that even when the crowd wasn't that big, they were cranking in crowd noise to make it sound even louder than yeah. it actually was. I don't know. I was at their, uh, I think it was game seven of the Calder cup finals against Bridgeport. Rick DiPietro was playing for Bridgeport that night and Posse Nerman in was a net for the wolves. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to say it was a double or triple overtime game seven game that the wolves wound up winning. And I think I had a headache for three days. It was so loud. It didn't help that. So I, I was interning at ABC news at the time in Chicago, and we're doing this great human interest story about a football player that wound up, getting paralyzed like his sophomore year, but he was graduating that day. And my dad calls me and he goes, what time are you guys going to be done? I go, why? He goes, well, let's drive down and see if we can get tickets to the game. And I go, okay. So I, I talked to Rob, the guy I'm interning with, and we met playing hockey down at Johnny's ice house. So even though he was news, not sports, he's like, yeah, I'm going to cut you loose early. You're going to that game. If you can get tickets. Yeah. I was like, sweet. So dad picks me up because lucky for us, where this kid lived was maybe 10 minutes from my house. Dad picks me up. We drive up to the North side. We just go up to the window and say, best available. We had the very last seats in the building. (laughs) And of course we get there and dad being older, you know, he's got the bladder of a two-year-old. So he had to use the bathroom and then he had to get us beers and brought. So we're standing in the back. It's pitch dark right before they do their whole deal. And I can barely hear this lady. And she comes up and she goes, do you guys want to be fans of the game? And I go, okay, sure. And my, so I tap my dad's shoulder and I tell him what's going on and he can't hear me. And finally I look at him. I said, do you want better seats? And he goes, well, yeah. So she leads us down 
kind of right above where the Zamboni comes out. And we got two recliners to watch triple overtime game in, which was amazing. The only problem, we had two nuns sitting next to us that they loved the blood and gore of the game. So that, and they were just screaming the whole time and they had those boomsticks and oh my God, it was like, I sat down and was like, oh, this ought to be interesting. Two nuns, they, they were ridiculous, but in a great way. And yeah, that, that was a game to remember to say the least. And I was never so happy to have a uh, recliner for a hockey game than that one. <laughs> I just got my recliner, man. I couldn't feel happier about that. I can't <laughs> wait to watch hockey in it this year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to try and stick to my notes because believe it or not, I did do my homework. Um, and one of the things I want to touch on, I'm almost happy that the first time we scheduled this uh, recording, things happened and it fell through because you were getting ready to go on a bike trip. And uh-huh. I didn't, un- at the time, I didn't know the backstory of that bike trip, but it's an incredible story. Uh, first of all, tell, tell me, you know, what you bike, and then more importantly, why you did it. Well, it was 210 miles across the great state of Missouri on uh, the Katy Trail, which is an old converted uh, rail bed. It's all crushed limestone. And I rode it on my mountain bike, an old mountain bike that I kind of converted to a gravel grinder. So I put these skinnier tires on. I put, I did what I needed to do to get this bike mm. ready to ride this thing. So it was, uh, <laughs> it, you know, it was, it was kind of a DIY thing where I just wanted to go and do it and just mm-hmm. ride. And the reason being was that my grandpa and I, my grandpa was just integral in my life. You know, we did everything together. He's my best friend passed away when I was 13 or 14. Um, he refereed till two weeks before he died at 76, you know, he's the oldest <laughs> official in the United States. Um, we'd always kind of dreamed of riding the full length of this thing. And I, when we were talking about it, it was probably a hundred miles long or 150 mm-hmm. back then. And it's and since you're talking to, about when it was a railroad, not on your bikes together. Well, no, it, 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 they started to convert it back then okay. years ago. So he it, it was kind of, it. it was in its infancy as the rail bed that they converted and, and is becoming a state park. And, you know, now it's up to 240 miles. Well, I decided, okay, I'm going to take the train to Sedalia, Missouri, get off, get on my bike and just ride. Mm-hmm. And man, I was just, it was one of those things that I felt like I had to do it. Yeah. I, I, I can't say that I'd been putting it off, but the timing had never really been right for it. While I was playing would have been bad timing and mm-hmm. training wise and everything and everything in my life had kind of been go, go, go these past couple of years with getting integrated into broadcasting and media and things. And, you know, I, this was the right time for it. And I just mm-hmm. went, I'm doing it. Okay. Book the, book the trip, got off, the, got off the train at like a little before noon and started to ride. And at first day I spent like 11 hours on the thing, a riding and 93 miles, 1300 feet elevation, and just nearly died. Like, I mean, <laughs> and, you know, I nearly got taken out by a groundhog on a trestle bridge. Um, <laughs> my legs were dying. My saddle sores were just outrageous. Like it was a terrible, terrible, terrible experience. I was Worse in so much pain. Training camp. I ended up riding two hours in pitch black darkness with no headlamp on this trail that's in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, <laughs> if I hit a turtle or if a mountain lion takes me out, or like anything goes wrong. I'm in, I'm in deep shit. Well, I somehow got to Jefferson city the first night and I thought I was done. I thought I was going to take the train home the next morning. And I woke up, I felt so hungover. I didn't have a sip of alcohol, but I'd burned through, you know, 1300 like 11,000 calories and hardly eaten. Couldn't drink enough water or Gatorade, you know? And if I got up and I, 
I adjusted my seat, my handlebars, because that was the one thing I thought I, I needed to change. And I did that and I rode for breakfast, rode over to breakfast in downtown Jeff city. And I was like, maybe I can do this. You know, I changed my shorts. Like I just went to a, a different padding that I had on the first day. And I don't know, like, I, I think I just kind of more so than thought, yeah, I feel a lot better. It wasn't that it was more like, you know what, dude, you're almost halfway there. Just do this. Mm-hmm. You need to get, you need to, you can't quit. You know? Yeah. There's something pushing. I also knew I was kind of in striking distance where my wife could drive couple hours and pick me up if she had to. <laughs> so, so off we went and I, I, you know, I got back on the trail and cranked another 70 something uh, miles that second day and uh, got to Daniel Boone's old property in Marthasville, Missouri, and then 35 the last day. So I did 210 miles in three days. Wow. Um, I'd never done more than I think the longest ride I ever did was probably 23 or four miles on my mountain bike. And but that's different. You know, like you haul ass up a hill and then you get to coast and rut. And like, this was just straight pedaling, like mm-hmm. eight, 10 hours a day, nonstop. Like you're pedaling that whole time. It's flat as can be, you know, and I've got a cooler and a backpack and I'm like, it's not like I was traveling heavy, but I'm moving every bit of 230, 40 pounds by the time you factor in the bike and everything else. And yeah. Not one so, of these newer uh, electric assist bikes either. No, I wasn't <laughs> doing that. So like, I can honestly say that it was probably the hardest physical thing I've ever done just because it was constant and it was nonstop. And that those last couple of miles were just awful. But by the time I rode in and put the bike on the rack, it was just like, I did it. It's done. Grandpa, that's it. We're never doing this again, but I did it. <laughs> but how, how rewarding when you came home, there had to be this, I'm not even going to say a sense of accomplishment, but almost like, yeah, grandpa, we did it. Yeah, hundred percent. It really was, you know, like, it, and it's kind of cathartic in some ways, you know, we mm-hmm. dreamed of this for a long time and I didn't know if it was ever going to happen. I, mm-hmm. I always told myself it would. Um, but yeah, man, like you just, you think of those, those moments in life and the people that meant a lot to you and he meant more than anything to me. And there's, you know, I still have dreams every now and then where I talk to the guy, you know, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's funny you say that my grandfather was a Dutch immigrant fought in world war II. Could, you know, he spoke English, but every now and then I'd be talking to him and he'd drift into speaking Dutch. Right. Didn't understand the game of hockey, but he loved it because everybody was playing. He'd go to my cousin's baseball and softball games. He's like, it's boring. There's only two people playing at a time. But he loved watching me play hockey. He passed away the day Mark McGuire broke the home run record. Because I remember, yep. like a lot of baseball fans, me and my dad were kind of turned off by the sport at that point. But that night, baseball was what you know, helped us that night because he passed away that morning. That night we turned on the game, watched it. And it was kind of like field of dreams where they're like, you know, baseball is what brings us all together. And so I, that's how I remember the day my, my grandpa died, but the day before or the night before my uh, first college start, I vividly had a dream where the phone rang. My mom Shout over to me and she goes, it's your Opa. And that, that's Dutch for grandpa. And I go, and I right. just kind of stop. And I went, but mom, he's dead. And she goes, yeah, he knows. <laughs> and, and so I'm like, I go, hello. And, and he goes, I, I just wanted to wish you good luck tomorrow. <laughs> you know? Cool. Yeah. yeah. And it was, it, I vividly it's remember a, that and we won the game and it was, it was fun. <laughs> but those little connections are just amazing. Right. You know, yeah. like I have those where I wake up and I'm, like I wake up and I'm emotional every time it happens, yeah. like without fail, like yep. I'm probably crying. And it's like, but it's like this, this, this crazy mix of emotions. Like, I'm so happy that I had a chance to interact and talk to him again, but in the same instance, it's like, it's sad, but it's, 
I don't know. It's hard to describe those feelings. And yeah, it's, it's funny how you describe what your grandpa did that my grandpa was in the, my grandpa's in the hall of minor league hall of fame here at town for baseball, mm-hmm. like amateur, you know, baseball yeah. hall of fame, played minor league ball. And I'll never forget my grandpa looking at me after a game when I was probably 12 or 13, it was pretty, you know, close to him passing. He goes, Michael, if I'd ever known hockey could have been this fun, I would have never chased that little white ball around. <laughs> you know? This guy played at the high, played at a high level yeah. and it, you know, his passion was hockey, but yep. you know, when he was growing up in St. Louis in the twenties and thirties, it didn't exist. No. You know, he didn't really have a chance to fulfill that passion until the fifties when he was 30. Yeah. You know, it was, he came, it came very late to him, but when he did, he just jumped all jumped right in. So let me ask this on that journey you're stuck there. You know, you probably had the headphones in, but you're stuck with your thoughts. It, it's like, I had no headphones. I rode totally oh, free. Oh my goodness. It was just, it was just me and the just noise. And like you and your no- yep. thoughts very much like being in net during a game. It's just oh, yeah. you and your thoughts. How much of that ride was it just you thinking about your grandpa? Uh, you know, not that much really. Like I, I think at times it kind of hit me a little bit. Mm-hmm. There were certain parts of the trail that definitely had, strong memories there you know mm-hmm. I, I think it was more of a almost like a tribute run anything yeah you know like when you're riding for a grand total of almost 25 or six hours like there's only so mem- many memory lanes you can go down <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, but you know there were a lot of there were a lot of times where you know i'd pass like defiance missouri this little town on the trail and i just think man we used to always go in there and we would get this drink called a carbo cooler mm-hmm. like this is the you know this is the early <laughs> 90s where we thought carbs were everything and they were basically yeah. like jacked up gatorades that you could only get at this one store <laughs> and we would always stop and get one you yep. know and i'm 10 11 years old it's the greatest thing in the world and you know we'd always stop in weldon springs and that's you know i stopped and i kind of walked around there for a little while and those those moments were definitely very close to home, very real. Yeah. Um, you know, the rest of the trip was just kind of a, it was kind of like a winking nod to him in some ways. And, and, and also too, like just great for me to go clear my head for a while. You know, I, yeah. I'd lost my job with Vegas. I didn't know what was coming next. And um, I just, I needed to kind of just chill and do something different. I just didn't expect it to be as painful as it was. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you'll do something like at a beach or. I mean, know. my ass was bruised for for like a week and a half, like for real, like deep bone bruises. And I didn't yep. expect that. I thought I'd have like chafing. I didn't have chafing. I had bone bruises. And, oh my goodness. Um, that was, that was tough, but it also was like, kind of like the pain of goaltending in some ways, you know, that feeling where you get hit and yeah, like, God damn, if it doesn't hurt like crazy when it hits you. And yeah. it sucks. And you look at the bruise and you look at what it's done to your body, but like yeah. deep down inside, like it makes you feel alive. Yeah. It was worth it. it and it's, it's funny crazy be- to explain that to people that I miss the pain of, of goaltending. Yeah. And, and those bruises don't show up immediately. It's like two or three days later when it stops actually hurting, the bruise starts to show and you're like, yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> Some, it dep- yeah. I, I took one to the back of the leg in, in morning skate in Dallas a couple of years ago with Ottawa. And that one was immediate. I can tell yeah. you that one, but yeah, like, some of them are. Yeah. But it really just, it's hard to explain that to people that you kind of miss the pain of being an athlete, like, especially at the pro level, like how mm-hmm. often you get that. And I don't know, like I never thought of myself as like a Massachusetts in any way. And I still don't, but there are those times, like, I mean, even this past week I play, I skate out and yeah. I took a stick right to the nose and I knew I was bleeding right away, yeah. you know, and 
it just part of me was like, oh, it hurts. And then the other half of me was like, this is hockey, you know? Yeah. It, it, <laughs> like, no, it's so funny because you, you get those bruises or, you know, like you said, sick to the nose. And it's like your initial reaction is like, you know, grunt, but then you just start laughing like, yeah, that that's right. <laughs> that's going to yep. leave a mark. Um, so I want to try and stay on topic and be mindful of time, but I, I, I can already see this is going to be like my discussion with Kelly Rudy, where we just go off on tangents and lose yep. track of time. So <laughs> I apologize. Um, one of the other things you're big into and uh, is auto racing. And what I find interesting yep. is not just auto racing, it's open wheeled racing. And I'm old enough to remember the show MTV show real world back when it was still real. And I remember in the London cast there was a fella from st louis also a hockey fan but he was big into open wheel racing too what is it about st louis and open wheel racing (laughs) you just happen to remember mike johnson who for years owned an indoor karting facility here in st louis my dad raced with his family okay uh, through scca and i don't know if it's a strong connection but it's definitely there i think for my family it was just that we were I don't, the, the gear aspect, man, has got to be it. Like, mm-hmm. I'm trying to like dance around and give you a really eloquent answer, but I think that <laughs> like we're creative, you know? Yeah. And I think that like, especially our era, I don't think it's the same way now with cars. Mm-hmm. Like everything's very plug and play. It's, it's, it's disposable. Mm-hmm. You know, when you were into racing as a kid in the eighties, if you grew up in the sport, especially like you saw, like I, my mom will tell a story about me using tin snips when I was three years old, cutting aluminum <laughs> for my dad. Right. It's Terry, what are you doing with let him use those? And like, they gotta learn sometimes, man, like you grabbed a sheet of aluminum or you grabbed a roll of fiberglass or Kevlar and you laid it up yourself. And like, that was goaltending to us. I'd take my pads, I'd cut them open. I'd take stuffing out. I'd restitch them. I'd use dental floss on them. Like we just were tinkerers and we had to learn better ways to make things. And nowadays, if you don't like it, the way it is, you order it from the shop and it comes mm-hmm. that way, you know? Oh, yeah. I want my toe to be a little bit different. Bauer, whoever they make it for you that way. But like, it was a wild West back then. Yeah. And that's the way racing was too. Like it was so creative. It was impressive. It was like, I, I find that there's a big connection there. And it, I mean, the helmet art, like my mask was based off of Jeff Ward, Indy Lights racing helmet from the mid nineties. And Jeff Ward came from motorcycles, was a champion there to Indy Lights to IRL. Like, <laughs> so I have that whole lineage. My, all of my masks, my whole life that got repainted were because of a race car driver. And I had that same type of design on every mask. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. You say, you know, our era, cause I'm 40. So we're, we're the same vintage. Yep. We can say, I remember my high school. I love your, I'm I'm looking right now. I love your Cooper hat. I love it. Yeah. There's a local uh, fellow up here, Northern Lids that uh, makes them and sells them on his website. So since I skate with them, I I figured I had to get one. Uh, But uh, my, my high school chemistry teacher, the one day, and this was when cars were starting to go more, like you said, you open the hood and it's just a big plastic covering of everything. He goes, you know, in the seventies, high school kids knew how to work on cars because you popped the hood and you could yeah. spot these different things. And he said, ask us all to raise our hand. How many of us knew how to change oil in the car? Maybe half the hands went up at that point in time. And he goes, it's terrible, but I don't blame you guys. Cause the way they're designing cars, you know, yeah, you can't yeah. find them. And 
you were into putting cars together and making them run. My dad was a fireman who taught auto education for the state of Illinois. So he was into taking them apart uh, (laughs) in very destructive ways. In fact, one of his uh, colleagues at the Illinois Fire Service Institute is from Collinsville, Illinois. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Mr. Bales loved to, when they were all done cutting up the cars, they would find one that was still in somewhat good condition. They'd take all of the windows out they would cut the roof off, take the doors off, and they, they'd make sure it was a front-wheel drive car. Then they would cut the car in half, and he'd drive around the lot, you know, the car's like this, sparking around, and he'd, he'd leave the windshield wipers. No windshield, but he'd leave the wipers and have them going. He's driving around the lot with his readers, you know, right on the tip of his nose, just like that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as the technology in the cars changed, it was harder for them to teach auto education because they go to the junkyard to get these cars and they're all from the seventies. Well, now there's airbags and electronics, you know, the, the battery's no longer in the front of the car. It's somewhere under a seat and it's crazy how much things have changed. You know, it's different. It's just different eras with that. I mean, I can still change oil and change yep. brake pads, but you know, do, am I going to go do a timing belt? No. I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> That's just not the way our, our, our lives work any longer, No, you know, and that's in some ways it's sad, but it also speaks to just how well the machinations of society have done. I mean, you can get these things fixed very quickly, get your maintenance done very quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, does it cost money? Yes, but that makes the economy go in a lot of ways. And, yep. you know, it's, it's funny to hear car guys now, like mechanics, they have to know computers just as much as cars. Yeah. I mean, so much of it's plug the chip in and go. And um, I don't know. I think it just, in a lot of ways, people under, don't quite understand really the skill level it takes in a lot of jobs, you know, like yeah. people will think of like, a, oh, he's a mechanic. Like, I think a lot of a mechanic, I think, yeah. I think mechanics are very skilled in people, man. Like yeah. if there's anybody think- that I actually think probably deserves to make some money, like probably a mechanic you know i'm a big fan of mike rowe and his push for the trades because there's a lot of stuff i can do around the house but with this kitchen remodel we got going on i probably could have done it but no i wanted somebody who is skilled and does this every day to do it because you you know what i'm going to give you the best i'll give you the best example that i have in life i have a degree in economics from saint lawrence university Mm mm-hmm I interned for three years with AG Edwards, which turned into Wells Fargo. It's now Wachovia. It's money management. I know how the market works. I could do that, but I don't have the time to invest in the knowledge it takes to be successful at investing at the level I want to. Right. So I pay somebody to manage my money because that person's a professional and they spend their entire day doing it and they're going to be better at it than I am. And it gives me peace of mind to give it to that person who's not going to half-ass it like I would, because yeah. I can't half-ass it. That's why I don't do it, right? <laughs> if I'm doing something, it's all in. Yeah. And that's what's, that's, it's a very goaltending thing. That's why I was driven. That's why I succeeded. That's why I had the success I did. And I know there's people who probably look at my career and, and go, oh, success. Well, yeah. I mean, I, listen, I was there. I played three dozen games, you know, yeah. Uh, up for almost two years, but I don't need to rattle off my accomplishments in my heart of hearts. No, I got the most out of the game that I possibly could. And I got to experience some really, really cool and amazing things from it and how grateful I am for that. But none of that happens if it doesn't come from an internal desire to be the best I could at something and to not go out there and leave any stone unturned. 
you just can't half-ass things and get to the top level. You know, there is a goalie in every beer league locker room that would love to have had your career. You right. know, there, there's no yeah, way. It's not lost on me, man. Like yeah. I'm, I, I honestly, like I kind of have imposter syndrome. Like I, I feel like an imposter sometimes. Like I really <laughs> do. Like I'm, you know, like how did this happen? Right. Like I'll walk into alumni rooms sometimes and just think like, did I really do that? Was I really part of that club? You know, yeah. and I think part of it is because I never spent a full season in the NHL. I never had a one-way contract. Like I was always a call-up guy destined to be sent back down. So it always feels like you're on borrowed time when you do that. Mm-hmm. But when you can finally step back from it all and really take it in and realize, and, and man, it is a special club, you know, and, and like the people respect you that, that have been there and done it. They know, and they know what it's like to grind in the minors like I did as long. You know, like that's, that's not easy to do and it takes a love, but it also takes dedication. And, you know, thankfully in hockey, you can make a really good living in the minors. I'm so happy we're unionized. I'm so happy we have good leadership. We had people that valued uh, the players who would be called up that they needed to make a living. Unlike baseball, where they Mm -hmm. work for literally half of minimum wage and eat hamburgers and hot dogs and live 15 deep to a house. Yep. Um, I'm thankful for what we have in hockey, um, but it's unique and we got to keep it that way. Uh, Cause I like to see <laughs> friends continue to be able to, to make a good living doing so, whether it's NHL, AHL, Europe, ECHL, you know? Yeah. So now you had an awesome career and if it was just you bouncing around, that would have been one thing, not a big deal. But I think one of the things that was really incredible about you especially late in your career was how active you are on social media and kind of peeling back that curtain to let us fans really see what it's like to be a pro hockey player. It's not just game day, what we see on the ice. There's a lot more to it. And there's that one post that's just etched in my mind when you got traded and you're saying goodbye to your girls. And that that's the part about not just minor league sports, but every level of, pro sports that happens it's at the same time it's a business and a i know it can't be easy uh but b um you know what what motivated you to share that part of the game with people just what you said the the reaction you got from it i wanted people to see that Mm -hmm. i mean that was vulnerable that was my two daughters who were almost three and five years old crying their eyes out because they haven't seen their dad for two months and they have no idea when they're going to see him again. Yep. And all we wanted to do that season was take a victory lap and play one more year. I was going to be my last year. I thought going into it Mm -hmm. and it just went haywire. Yeah. You were all over the place. It was almost like uh, where's Waldo, but where's Mike now? (laughs) Yeah. Five jerseys, you know, three NHL teams in four days. Um, And that picture, some people buried me on social media because they saw a BMW in the background and they go, Oh, he'll be fine. Look at that car whining about this. And like, first it wasn't even my car. Yeah. I had the 2008 Acura TL sitting right next to it. Okay. 2008. And this was 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, And side note, gives a shit. My two kids are crying their eyes out. Have a little human compassion here, right? Yep. Like th- th- this, this mindset that money fixes everything 
there's just as many rich people that kill themselves as poor people. Yep. Probably more. And you want that in blunt terms, there it is. And it's money does not fix. And it's, it can sound so bad when you say it, but when somebody says that to me as a pro athlete or to somebody else, Oh, shut up the money, blah, money. You're fine. You'll be okay. You can tell that that's a person who's never had money and never will because they don't appreciate or understand what that's like. And that sounds terrible, but it's like, you'll never be in that position to understand that it doesn't matter at that moment that my kids don't know what to do. Like showing up, we've been apart for two months at here. Yeah. You know, Ottawa calls me up. My family's stuck in Belleville, Ontario. My kids are in Canada. I'm American. They're going to school. I hadn't seen them for two months. You know, Ottawa didn't follow the CBA. They didn't let me know if I was supposed to get housing or not twice blew through uh, things in the CBA. I didn't get any help from the NHLPA on it. And I was stuck in a hotel, like in hockey purgatory. Mm -hmm. Am I being sent down? Am I going to be traded? Am I going to be, am I, am I on the team? Am I not on the team? And I never got any answers. And, you know, you're sitting there crying in a hotel room because you just don't know what's going on with your life. And on top of that, you're literally trying to perform in the NHL and play the best you can at the highest stage where you're completely exposed as a goaltender. I mean, I walked into Montreal, I walked into Montreal and played hockey night in Canada. You know what I mean? Like, in the middle of all this and like mentally what that takes to compartmentalize everything and go through it. It just, you know, man, that was tough. And that's why I think us being more open and sharing things is, I think it helps people. I do. I I think we've been so close, just so close off in hockey. Nobody knows anything about our players. Nobody knows anything about Sidney Crosby. Nobody knows anything about Connor McDavid, you know, and, I'm not asking for these guys to go out there and put every single little thing that they do in life on social or on blast, but it's like, gosh, you have this, you have this chance to make a difference and let people see what it's like and show how like awesome you guys are. Yeah. You know, and, and we just don't. But how there's, there's such a fear of looking braggadocious and that's the hockey culture is always stay humble, stay humble. And it's like, no, man, I'm not, bragging like i'm i'm sharing my i mean i like to share this man this is special you know this is something that i wish people could see the the fun of it the heartbreak the agony the the joy like there's so much that goes into it and we just beat that into kids you know they're they're 11 years old wearing suits to the rink like why there's just no need for that let them play let them have fun you know that's what it that's all that matters is that kids go out and they enjoy this sport yeah, you talk about wearing suits to games. When I was in high school, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school, yeah. playing the Chicago Catholic Hockey League. So it was a league rule that players had to wear a shirt and tie to games, which, okay, fine. That's what we had to wear to school. Yeah. Well, my coach, my junior year, decided to take it a step further and told us we had to wear a sweater with our shirt and tie. You know, oh, wow. Up. You know, so it's like, okay, cool. Well, my dad was an alum of our high school and still had his – letterman sweater like happy days style letterman sweater from the 70s like the fonz man yeah like, so i show hey. up i show up to that first game <laughs> and i have my shirt and tie on with my letterman sweater from the 70s and i wasn't a very big guy my dad had to have been much skinnier than me at that age which he clearly isn't these days, but he was back then apparently because this thing was skin tight on me. And my, I walk in and my coach looks at me and looks at the sweater and he goes, 
you're exempt from the rule if you're going to keep wearing that thing. <laughs> I was like, but I look pretty darn good in this thing. That's like, right. come on. And we still have the sweater my daughter has in her closet. She likes to wear it every now and then, but it was just funny. Week two of football is in the books, and now it's time to review the tape and get ready for week three with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. To kick off another action-packed week, DraftKings is giving new customers $150 instantly when they bet $1 on any football game. Listen up, because you don't want to miss this. Head to the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and place a bet of $1 on any week three game to receive $150 in free bets instantly. If Sportsbook is not yet available in your state, DraftKings still has huge cash prizes up for grabs all season long with their daily fantasy contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code THPN to receive $150 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any football game. That's promo code THPN this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Remember, you must be 21 or older in New Jersey, Indiana, and Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER, or if you're in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Uh, but back to, you know, that that image you shared with the girls and talking about, you know, people focused on the car and the money part of it. They clearly it didn't didn't have kids because any parent sees that picture and they they could feel that emotion and that heartbreak. It wasn't about the money at that point. It was about that connection with your kids. The amazing thing is when you get comments from people who clearly do have kids. Yeah. And I worry about them. I yes. worry about their families. I'm not perfect. Our family's not perfect. No kids. Like, it's just, life's a struggle in a lot of ways. Yeah. If anybody thinks that they've got a perfect family, like, we're, we're all dreaming, right? Yeah. We're all lying to ourselves. We <laughs> yeah. all have struggles. And I just can't believe it when somebody will put you on blast and then you see the picture of them with their kid. Yeah. And then it's typically a tweet about how their kids, you know, the best hitter they've ever seen it at six years old. And it's like, yeah. okay, this all makes sense. Like you've got this inflated version of yourself and your reality. And, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of just the nature of pro sports. People want to live vicariously through those who are doing it. Right? They just want to be in the action. They want to feel part of it. It's why they say like, you know, we didn't play well tonight. Oh, like a fan, you know, well, are you on the team? Yeah. And that, that'll blow them up. Right. Like, yeah. you know, like, well, we didn't play well tonight. Like, Oh, I didn't know you took a shift in this period, you know? And like, I'll say that jokingly because I truly understand that feeling of us. Like you play for a city yeah. when you play a pro sport, you wear it on your chest, you wear it for the Chicago Blackhawks, the St. Louis blues. Like you are playing for that city. Yeah. I, I understand it when people say we didn't play well because they feel part of it. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the beauty of sports. Yeah. But it does always strike you a little funny when you've actually been on the ice or on the yep. field when somebody says we didn't play well and it's like 
oh, that's that's nice. You can say that. I played my ass off. I know it didn't go great while you watched me and drank six bush light. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> but well, it, it's funny you say My son's a baseball <laughs> player and we'll get home from games. And my wife will be like, well, how did the game go? And I'll be like, well, you know, we and she, she's like, oh. How many hits did you have in the game? And it's like you. She gives it to you. That's yeah. Funny. She gives it to me. It's funny because I almost think like the way you know I am with my kids. I'm I'm very hands off. Like, hey, you go out there and have fun. Like, you had tryouts this past weekend. It's like, don't look at tryouts. It's evaluations. They're just trying to find yeah. the right right spot to put you to succeed. It's like, oh, okay. But it's like as a parent, every pitch, I I feel I'm more anxious than he is in the game. So I was like. Yeah, I can say we, because I, I went through the same emotions as he did. <laughs> well, you take ownership of it in a lot of yeah. ways, right? I mean, they yeah. are your children. They're your offspring. Like you, you love them dearly and you want to, you just want to see them enjoy it. Yeah. And like he's 13, I'm, he's a better ball player than I ever was. <laughs> I mean, I mean, one of the coolest things ever was last year. I wasn't there for it, which crushes me. I was out in Vegas doing my thing, working with the Golden Knights and, you know, I get, the video of my daughter from my wife and she's my daughter scored the game winning shootout goal in this tournament. She's a mite. It's house. Mm-hmm. It's eight yeah. you. And I don't know if she'd scored a goal, all year, you know, all year. And yeah. she goes down hardly stick handles the thing and just buries five hole in this kid. And mm-hmm. like, I, I, I was emotionally overwhelmed. Yeah. Not because they won or anything else. It was just because of her reaction. Yeah. You know, she didn't know what the hell to do. She didn't know how to celebrate. She watches hockey. She doesn't watch celebrations. She didn't know what to do. She put her hand in the air and I could see the smile on her face and her teammates, the way they celebrate it. But it just, when you're a father, when you're a parent and you see your child organically building a love for something and their happiness and like, that might've been the happiest moment of her life at that point. Yep. And, And that to me, just that meant more than anything. I could care less that it happened on her scoring a goal. It was cool that it was, but just that smile, man. And and that's just try to tell people all the time. I got to help coach that team for half the season. I just told the parents from the start, let them have fun. This is what matters. It's eight. You, it doesn't even matter if it's 13, you know, Bantams, Peewees, they need to be having fun. Yeah. It's, it's funny how much better players play too when you just tell them have fun hundred percent look at marty Brodeur. yeah when the whistle would blow and he'd look at the ref and give him that smile after a big save yeah or the and cockiness that patrick wah had when he'd get on the stage after winning and you know tell jr he couldn't hear him because he had a stanley cup ring <laughs> plug in his ear yeah you no know, like when you you'd see these glimmers and these 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 wry smiles and, mm-hmm. and when you see that joy come through and NHL players yeah. and goalies and like Marty Brodeur for me was just the best about that. And mm-hmm. part of the reason why I, you know, I, I don't know if I want to say idolized, but looked up to him so much because I just see him be lights out focused, make these unbelievable reads in a game, make the save. And the ref comes over and he's smiling and laughing. Yeah. And I see it in Mark Andre Fleury today, you yep. know, and I see it and you see it in other goaltenders, but like, that's that's what it should be and that's why they're successful people because everything that they do is geared toward making sure that it's not just serious business it's still a level of enthusiasm and joy yeah that you can't find outside of the sport 
Well, and it's funny you mentioned Flurry because he's on my list to talk about here. But the, the Angola guys even mentioned, you know, how how much fun he has playing the game. That it it's obvious, and fans pick up on that, and that's why he became a fan favorite in Vegas because he, you know, it was infectious his love for yes. the game, and I'm excited to see that in Chicago. But I want to ask you, as a Blackhawks fan, you know, what does that do to the Blackhawks? team bringing in the reigning Vezina Trophy winner you know they were a borderline playoff team made a few moves with bringing in a guy like him for the season but then you also have this nice young crop of goaltenders and Delia and Lincoln and and his old buddy uh Subban over there you know how yeah what do you think of that move well I think it just it gives him some legitimacy in the locker room to start the season mm-hmm. and I said this last year and I said it on record that if you were Jonathan Taves and he didn't end up playing, but if you're Patrick Kane and you're looking around and you're looking and seeing Colin Delia and Malcolm Subban or your goaltenders, mm-hmm. you're going, I don't know what we have. Right. And that's not to slag on those guys at all. That's a real assessment. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have a Robin Leonard. You don't have Corey Crawford anymore. You don't have somebody who's won at that level. Right. And you got a lot of hope and you got guys that you like and are good people and damned if they don't work their ass off, but you just, you just don't know. Right. And, you know, I think all of us in the goalie world were rooting for Colin Delia or Malcolm Subban to come in and just crush it last year and finally break out and get that. And, you know, Lankanen comes in and man, he was a breath of fresh air, but it took a while for that to really go. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing is like right from the start. Now there's expectations that, Hey, we're going to get good goaltending from the beginning. And, you know, I think for, you know, bringing Mark Andre in, I just think there's such an X factor to him that you've already discussed. Yep. It's not just your job as a goaltender to stop the puck. You have to inspire your teammates and nobody does that more than Mark. I've talked to so many players in and out of the Vegas locker room, out of the Pittsburgh locker room. And he was there and they all said to, to a man, just, they all want to play for him. They want to see him win. they want to be by his side when they do that. And I, I think that matters. I really do. And, yeah. you know, I, th- I think it's, you know, the Blackhawks have, they have things, they have kinks to work out for sure. Oh, but yeah. I do think from the start of the season, there's definite, there's legitimacy in the net to start yeah. the year instead of question marks. They're even without the Seth Jones move, you know, some of the other ones, they're a markedly better team simply with yeah. that one move. And I mean, the way they pulled it off, literally traded it for nothing. <laughs> well, and, and Hey, let's be very clear. Chicago needs a good story right now. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's like they uh, very badly need somebody to turn the tide of negative publicity. And yep. if there's anybody that can do that, it's Mark Andre Fleury. Yeah. As a Blackhawk fan, it's um, very disheartening. Yep. News as it comes out, you know, one thing we've learned about Mark Andre Fleury too, from uh, the spit and chicklets boys is he's quite the prankster too. So that, that should bring uh, some lighthearted uh, feelings into the locker room. We've, be funny oh, no. when he starts pulling them on Johnny Taves and Patrick Kane. <laughs> you know, he was my, I, my first NHL start was against Mark Andre. Oh, really? In, it was in the igloo. Yeah. And that was fun. I showed him the game sheet uh, a couple of years ago <laughs> when I got the gig with Vegas as their TV analyst. I, you know, the first year when I was there two years ago, we, there was no COVID restrictions. So you go in yeah. the locker room, you'd see everybody and like flower. And I would just end up talking shop for 20 minutes every day. Cause yeah. I was in the league the year before. Yeah. Like it was just two old goalies hanging out yeah. and 
it's, I showed him the game sheet and he was like, Oh yeah, I remember that. Like, yeah, it's like, yeah, dude, like, <laughs> I, yeah, you won. I yeah. Yeah, didn't win that, but it was, it was kind of fun to walk down that memory lane with him. Well, and it's funny because you talk, you know, old, two old goalies, you know, played against each other. I've learned doing this podcast, having goalies literally from the Bantam level through to NHL hall of famers and Eddie Belfour. It doesn't matter what level you played with. Once you find that other goalie in the room, your night's sealed. That's who you're talking yeah. to the rest of the day. <laughs> my know? favorite, my favorite one was the ECHL All Star Game in 2007, of all things, because yeah. uh, just because it's kind of like the quintessential goalie story. Yeah, and you know, I really got along with my goalie partners. I can only think of one of them I really just didn't enjoy, and mm-hmm. they're your, they should be your closest confidant in the room. They're your yeah. right, they're your number one competitor, but it's not up to you who plays, mm-hmm. and. The coaches decide that, yep. whatever. But I, I remember this this 2007 All-Star game because it was myself, Devin Dubnik, Adam Burkle, Cedric Desjardins, David Schantz, uh, and I, I can't remember the other. But, like, you know, Dubnik and I just went – we went all night. Yeah. <laughs> and Desjardins was with us. And it was, like, literally it got to be, you know, one or two. Oh, here comes the goalie union. Like, literally <laughs> everywhere we went in Boise, Idaho, was just, like, the goalies <laughs> – yeah. And none of us knew each other from anything that before, but yeah. it was, you know, you just Dramatic. automatically gravitate towards each other. And like, that was always a really cool moment, you know, like years later when Dubnik and I were in Arizona for training camp, we laughed about it. Like how it was right at the start of our careers, you know, a decade later, here we are again. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how goalies just find each other. My brother-in-law, you know, got married a couple of weeks ago and we're at the reception and this guy comes walking up to me and my brother-in-law introduces me and he didn't look like he'd be a hockey fan at all. You find out he's a chef and it's like, Oh, cool. And we're talking. And then my brother-in-law just drops. He's like, Hey, and you know, just so you know, Joe, Joe's a goalie and he's got his own podcast. And this guy's like, you're a goalie. I am too. And like, mm-hmm. it was boom, rest of the night. We're just sitting in the corner with our beers. Talk, talk, it's funny. Talking. Cause like, here in St. Louis, I know three chefs that are goalies or former goalies. <laughs> and it all relates back to being creative. Like we talked about racing. It's yeah. the same thing, man. You work with your hands. You're creative. Like goalies, goalies are the art kids of the hockey world. Mm-hmm. We sit well, there, we design masks. It all goes together. When I had Eddie and Dane Belfour on, we we're talking, you know, I let them know I'm a home brewer. You know, I'm not doing whiskey because we all know that's highly illegal at, at home. And right. when I said that, Dane just started laughing. Uh, <laughs> but I'm a home brewer and they, they said the same thing. There's just something about goalies. We're the creative kind. So, yeah, you are right. Uh, but I like that you mentioned the chef part of it because you're very much into food. You are a foodie, you know, anybody that follows you on Instagram. Yeah. There's all this other stuff, but you're using Instagram for its original intended purposes and sharing your food, but it's the preparation. How did you get so into cooking and not just cooking, but like the gourmet side of it, you're not just <laughs> making, you know, your regular stuff. You're, you're kind of like uh, Remy from Ratatouille over there making some good <laughs> stuff. Well, you know what? I almost take exception to foodie because I don't like adult lunchables very much. I'm not a charcuterie <laughs> fan. And it's like, that's an automatic disqualifier to being a foodie. Um, but I, I think for me, it just started because like the pro hockey lifestyle, you go to the rink in the morning, you get mm-hmm. home a little after lunchtime, one or two o'clock. And you got time on your hands. 
mm-hmm. and you got to cook dinner. And me being a type A personality, I was just like, well, okay, I'm going to start cooking. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. And yeah. it started out really rudimentary, um, <laughs> basic stuff, just, you know, chicken and pasta and vegetable, all the things that you were always told as a kid that you should eat, which I found out yeah. later on was just trash chicken breasts. I can't even eat them. They're so, they're so flavorless now, yeah. like dry. And then, you know, pasta, pasta is terrible for you. It, it yeah. damn, it doesn't taste amazing, but it's so bad for you. Right. Yeah. So I hardly, that's like a special occasion thing for me now, but I had all this time and I thought, okay, I, I'm actually starting to enjoy this. My mom always cooked mm-hmm. and I'm so thankful that she did because I'm not going to sit here and tell you that she was Julia Child, but my mom made stuff that tasted good. I yeah. liked eating my mom's cooking and she made it. And that was important to me. And I wanted to do the same thing. And now I yeah. want that for my kids too. But I started to watch Top Chef on Bravo. <laughs> my wife and I did together and we got way into it. And, <laughs> you know, that kind of coincided with getting a subscription to Food and Wine Magazine yeah, and just trying things. You know, and man, there were some absolute disasters I've done. I still screw things up and it drives me up the wall, but you got to be willing to try. You got to learn. And I don't know, to me, like, I'm not an artist. I'm not an artistic person. I can't paint. I don't, I don't have that type of eye. Like I have an aesthetic eye, but I don't really, I couldn't tell you a Monet from a Picasso. Let's put it that way. But to me, like food on a plate is that's art. That's art to me. Like when you make it, I want it to be pretty. I want my food to be pretty straight up. Like it needs herbs. It needs color contrast, the the flavor, salt, acid, fat, heat. Like it needs all these different components. Like I I just loved it, man. I found it. It was something that I could feel myself getting better at. I learned how to, you know, you could, you can never learn enough with it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that fits very much into a goaltender's mindset. Yeah. You're always evolving. You're always learning to new techniques. You're always looking for the young guys to show the old guys the way when you get older. And it's the same way with cooking and, you know, for all the old standbys, there's always a new riff on it and you can, you learn how to do things and you, yeah, you well, figure you, out, okay, like I don't have capers. I'm going to toss a little fish sauce in this. And like, you know, you just, I, I just, man, I fell in love with it and it tastes good. So it's like, it's a double whammy for me that it, it, it checks a lot of boxes. Yeah. And what I love is whenever you're grilling, you always show your grill, which you retrofitted with a couple of hockey sticks. I did. Yeah, I did. I cust- it's highly customized. Yeah. yeah but like <laughs> for somebody who loves food as much as you, you know, I think we're all expecting you to have, you know, like a, one of the green eggs or like, I just got one of those pit boss pellet smokers, but you still have, you know, the old school, <laughs> uh, yep little old grill that you know pellet grills are for posers man hey i'm I'm still learning but as we've done this kitchen it's been amazing (laughs) listen those those pellet smokers and grills yeah in all honesty are they are fantastic for what they do and especially as a gateway into doing smoking and other things I, I, I jokingly say that when I say they're for posers, cause it's like, you literally, you toss it in, you turn the button to 225 and you see it six hours later, you yeah. know, like, but I love the live fire aspect. I love the challenge of it. I love the different smokes and flavors mm-hmm. that I can play with. I lo- and like, frankly, it's not easy. I don't like easy things, yeah. you know, but when you get to the point that you really start nailing it, um, it's really like rewarding, man. <laughs> like yeah. When you, people come over and they're like, man, 
these ribs are good. I'm like, I know, like <laughs> that's when, you know, you get to the point that's it's cool, but yeah, it is. It's a PK grill. It's super old school. Um, but realistically it matters who's, who's doing the cooking. Yep. Right. Absolutely. I, absolutely. I mean, if I didn't have a PK, I'd probably have a big Weber kettle, like those big ceramic green eggs. Those are awesome. Like there's, it's all about what you're using and working with, but my PK yeah. is cool, man. It, it retains heat really well. It's great for smoking and it's, and my kids love it cause it's kind of low, you know, and they get to like paint the ribs. They call it when they put the sauce on them. <laughs> well, it, 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 you, you hit the nail on the head perfectly. It's not, it doesn't matter what you're using. It, ma- it matters who's using it. It's just like goalie equipment. You know, I, I remember, you know, growing up, you'd see the kid come out with the brand new stuff and it's like not a puck mark on his equipment. You're like, well, this kid's going to suck. doesn't matter that he's got the new stuff, you know? Yeah. And it's like in the beer leagues now, I've got 21 year old Vaughn legacies and guy, I walk out and guys are like, Oh, we got a night ahead of us. <laughs> you don't wear that stuff and not be, you know, somewhat decent for the beer leagues, uh, which I, I didn't live up to that last night in our season opener, but luckily my team pulled it out. We were uh, down six to three, 10 minutes left. And they decided uh, they had worked off their pregame parking lot beers and, put four on the board to come away with the win. <laughs> I'm like, but, it's funny about equipment because I wore Bauer my entire career. Yeah. And Bauer was so good to me. It was, a, it was a two-way street, right? Yeah. Like I never asked for an endorsement deal from them. Um, they did. I mean, they did, frankly, they gave me endorsement. Mm-hmm. I never negotiated it once. And I just, man, I, I used their gear when I was 15 years old. Simple as that. And your friend, you, I loved it. Yeah. But you know what? pretty much every company makes really good equipment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you shouldn't just wear a brand because your favorite goalie does. You should wear what you think works best. And that's why I always tell people and kids, especially to try different gear. How do I mm-hmm. do that? Well, ask, go ask the kid that's on the sheet with you. Yeah. If you can borrow his gear, trade gear for a practice. Like when I was in Peoria, Jake Allen and I traded goalie pads for a practice. He yep. wore, he wore my Bowers. I wore his Vaughn's. Yeah. And I like my Bowers better. He liked his Vaughn's better, but we tried them. Yeah, we and, did that in goalie camps. And, you know, in college, yeah. teammates got different stuff. It's like, oh, I got to take these out for a spin, <laughs> you know? For sure, man. And, yeah. I, and I always tell that to people. Like Landon Bow, who I played with in, in the Texas and Dallas's organization, I said, man, like, you're young. You should try every company this summer. Yeah. I said, they'll send you gear. Like, try everybody. And sometimes there's a hesitancy, right? Like, oh, I don't want to, you know, make them feel. I'm like, no, dude, they will send you a set of gear take advantage of this mm-hmm. because it's, it's your livelihood. You need to play with whatever makes you feel yeah. best. Yeah. And our mutual friend, goalie gear nerd, you know, I asked him that question flat out, you know, who makes the best equipment? He said, everybody does. Yep. It's, you know, it's what's best for you and the way you play. And yeah, I've got 21 year old equipment, but finally place an order for new stuff. And mm-hmm. tomorrow will be 11 weeks since I ordered it. And I ordered new Vons, got some V9s. And, uh, but I would go to the Let's Play Hockey Expo every year and check out all of the equipment. And it was what worked best for my style of play. And I like the older, softer pad. You know, back when we were in high school, all pads were soft. So that's what I got yeah. used to, you know, like the CCM Access line. I could never, to me, that's a two by four, I like. Uh, so it's like, I needed something softer and, you know, and I came to love stiff pads, you know, like I started saying soft and I ended up loving them stiff, you know, midway through my career. 
if I got new pads as often as you did, I probably would too. But <laughs> I, like I said, I, I bought mine in 1999. Me and my son had the realization yesterday when yeah. we were talking about my new equipment that I've had my pads longer than I've known my wife. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> he, he thought it's that a was a long relationship with the two. Yeah, he, he <laughs> thought that was pretty funny. And, and I met my wife like right after I got these things. So th- th- there was that part to it. Um, so I'm not going to keep you much longer. Uh, I, I finish each episode with a list of 10 rapid fire questions. But before I get to them, I got an important question for you. Of the cities you've played in and visited as a goalie, what were the most under the radar, awesome food cities? Oh, cool. Good question. Really good question. Oh man. You know, St. John's Newfoundland mm-hmm. was there were a couple spots there that I would just love to show up at in town and Raymond's merchant tavern. That place was so good. And you're almost inspiring me to go through my big list of cities that I played in. I think everybody (laughs) knows that Austin has a good food scene. Mm -hmm. Um, I was lucky enough to play in Portland, Maine. And I think it's on, I don't think people know Portland, Maine might be the best food scene in the nation. Really? Yeah. I, I don't say that lightly. It's incredible. And I mean, St. John's, Portland, those places were so, so good. And so many different varieties of things that were offered. Um, boy, it's tough when you start thinking of like, you start trying to think of now where you've had great dishes. And yeah. like, you know, I found a place in St. Paul's named Octo that was just so good, but it was kind of like one city. And Minneapolis, I didn't get a chance to go as many places I wanted. And yeah, um, I, I think Portland's got to be the answer just because, I mean, I had so much familiarity to it, but every single player that when they came in and I took them somewhere beyond just your, like, let's be like the, the lobster rolls there are unbelievable. Everybody yeah. knows about them, but when you take them outside of that to the other places and they all go, wow, like, yeah. I didn't know this was here. It takes a cake. Well, it's like being from Chicago when I'm in town with people that aren't from Chicago, they're like, Oh, I want to go to Giordano's and get deep dish pizza. And I'm like, no. First you can get of all, that in the freezer aisle, if you want yeah. anywhere in the U.S., <laughs> it's like we'll get deep dish while we're here, but it won't be from Giordano's. But we're not getting deep dish because in Chicago, deep dish is special occasion pizza. It's not everyday pizza. I said it's the thin and crispy in Chicago, yeah, pub style. And yeah. it's like so that that's what we're gonna get. And I would always take them to Vito and Nick's on the South Side. Dave Portnoy finally went there. Like it is, in my opinion the best pizza in the world but it's like yeah there's the places the locals go and then there's the places the tourists go so whenever you know people i know are heading to chicago they're always like all right where should we go eat and unfortunately it's over half my life ago now so i'm like i could give you places but i don't even know if they're still around (laughs) you know nice the nice part is when you can find the balance when you find a place that's still like a touristy spot that everybody knows about but is still like banging good food yeah that's when you've really found your wheelhouse. And like yeah. where I'm from here in St. Louis, we've got a couple of those legacy restaurants that they still kick ass. And like yeah. going for going to Ted Drew's for frozen custard is just like a no brainer. It is absolutely as good as people remember and think, you know, like those types of places. Yeah, Rainbow just, Cone for us is the ice yeah. cream place. Yeah. No, it's like my dad was a fireman. So he got some good food recommendations over the years. And he was on the hazmat unit for I think it was seven, eight years and they were citywide. So 
we, we had some good food there. I, I always remember the one time we were down at Maxwell street back when it was like Maxwell street from the blues brothers, when they went there, one of my favorite movies ever, Jake and, and Elwood. Yes. Uh, I could go on and on days about that movie. Um, whole fried chickens and dry white toast. <laughs> Jake Elwood. <laughs> but we're, we're sitting there and we're eating some good Maxwell Street Polish sausages and we're sitting on the rink and I go, Dad, look at the size of that cat. And this thing was this big. And he looks at it and he goes, there's no hair on that tail. That's no cat. Hurry up, close the doors. We're getting out of here. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, he, he always had some good places. We had people come to visit. It, it was like, where do you find these places? Today? He goes, ah, so-and-so over at Engine 98's house. Or, you know, yeah. they, they told me about it. And yeah. Those are and they've the got their own subculture. Yeah. With, you know, firehouse there, and it's pretty cool. I've, I've had a couple of friends that are firefighters, you know, and, they, you know, oh, it's his duty for the week or whatever. Like it's, that's a pretty good, pretty cool group of camaraderie. Yeah. So mom, mom could cook, but she wasn't, she cooked out of necessity, not because she enjoyed it. Dad was the cook in the house. The problem is he learned how to cook at the firehouse. So he didn't know how to cook for four of us. And he would make in moderation. (laughs) Yeah. He would make enough spaghetti noodles for three of us, but enough sauce for eight of us. And, you know, finally one day I looked at him and was like, dad, the war is over. You you can stop rationing the noodles. And I thought my sister was going to pee herself. And he just looked at me like you SOB. (laughs) You don't like it. But I went to the firehouse every chance I got growing up with them. And the food was unreal. I I remember one day uh, engine 103, it's, basically right across the street from Johnny's ice house, three blocks from the United center. And his cook was just phenomenal. And he made this, we'll call it like a jambalaya, but we're like, man, Larry, this is amazing. You need to make this again. He goes, I'm not going to be able to do that. And we go, why not? He goes, I just took all the leftovers in the fridge and threw it together. I don't know what's in there. (laughs) We're like, this is unreal. (laughs) But uh, so I don't want to keep you much longer because we've been going for a while and I know we could probably just keep talking because we haven't even touched on equipment and we can always do it again and talk goalie gear. Yeah. It'll take forever. (laughs) We might have to, you know, we might just have to do that and bring, you know, make it a, uh, uh, you know, deal where we bring goalie gear nerd on too. Um, so I, I have these rapid fire questions. I ask the same questions of everybody. Uh, the first one is what's, the craziest coaching moment from your playing days oh (laughs) i figure you probably got a few to choose from oh gosh yeah best ofs are always hard because it's such a long career oh man from boy some of the coasts with glenn gullison when he threw a trash can and i you know probably coach joe marsh at st lawrence university we kicked over a gatorade cooler and i got my first win that's just a memorable one. We were playing in Providence and he t- started tomahawking the cooler with an old Sherwood <laughs> and it, the, you know, the blade wouldn't break off. And he finally just like super kicked the Gatorade cooler his orange Gatorade all over the locker room, staying in the bags. And we were losing like three, one going into the third and we won four, three in overtime. <laughs> that was, that was a good one. Uh, we had a coach named Dave Allison in Peoria who came into the room singing Christmas carols directly before Christmas and everybody joined him in, in a, bar of uh <laughs> Kamali faithful um yeah we we alley cat walked in one time like at southern general we were playing grand rapids that night 
fellas, we are going to be winners and grinners. We are going to beat the Grand Rapids Griffins. And he went for like five minutes in tone and character. We got the shit kicked out of us that night. But yeah, Dave Allison was up there. Joe Marsh. Those, those are, I'd have to really think for the craziest, but those are yeah. some tip of the iceberg ones. You talk about, you know, singing. It was my freshman year. I got a concussion and that was a four-year JV all-star. Cause like you said, sometimes just when you come in, there's somebody above you. And so I was a JV all-star. I loved every minute of it. We had like an 11 o'clock Saturday morning game and I get a concussion. I finished the game, played seven minutes, holding onto the crossbar, making saves, didn't let it go. And yeah. so they're checking me out and they're asking me, again, anybody watching? I'm like, I don't know, probably. And the coach is like, come on, you're coming with us. Uh, or no, I'm sorry. That, that was a different game. I was keeping stats at a varsity game and we're in uh, St. Peter, Minnesota at St. Olaf. And uh, Eric Richardson, our only Jewish player on the team gets the win that night. And it happens to be the uh, start of Hanukkah. So he gets on the bus singing the dreidel song and he's lead, like teaching the team how to sing the dreidel song. So by the time we got to campus, all of these, you know, Catholic kids are singing the dreidel song with Richie. <laughs> that sounds like a very Mitch Korn moment. You know, yeah. if, if you ever got a chance to meet Mitch or Mitch Korn goalie school, it's uh, Mitch, of course, is Jewish. And he does to he loves to play off of that. And it's I, my best friend at school, Mike's a breaker as well. Like it's it's so funny when people have that, you know, have a different unique background or culture can kind of get everybody to chime in and join with them. And like those organic moments where everybody's yeah. just, you know, rising, having a blast. Right. Yeah. I, I remember in high school, we had a Jewish kid on the team. Uh, Odelson was his last name. Um, and you know, it's a Catholic school. So we're taking religion class every day. And for one day, one of my teammates, he's just interested about the Jewish faith and he's asking all these questions. And finally he stops and looks at him. He goes, you realize it's the first part of the Bible is my entire religion. <laughs> like you should know this stuff. And at that, the whole locker room just lost it. Like, yep. You've got a really good part, you know, point there. He's like, you, you should know this stuff. This is nothing new to you. He's like, my God, spiteful years is loving. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was one of those. So the next question, what's your favorite all-time goalie mask? Podvin. I, I was guessing that was the response yeah. based on your earlier. I just listen, all those old school guys, all those old Greg Harrison masks, I could go down the list, but that original cat mask for Felix mm-hmm. Potvin to me is just everything about it, the shape of the mask, how the design flowed through it, his nickname, how it fit the colors and the, of the motif of the Leafs and his gear. Like I don't and, think you can touch and that. How it adapted to the other teams that he played yeah. for too. And that inspired me. My, my design went from team to team. Mm-hmm. I just changed the colors, logos on the side. It was primarily the same, uh, same design on the, especially yeah. on the forehead and on the sides. So the, the next one is, and you've, you've played at a few. So what's your favorite rink that you've played at? Uh, in the NHL, I was in Montreal. Uh, in the American League, is Syracuse. Mm-hmm. And I, Montreal is just because it just had a vibe to it, man. Like, you it's skate out there, and it's got this hum to it. You can't really define. And it's people talking hockey, mm-hmm. watching hockey. It's this, It's got an aura. Like, I don't yeah. know how else to describe it, man. And getting to play in that and like, – 
the way that they organically cheer as the play happens when they should be cheering and it builds to these natural crescendos and it ebbs and flows and uh, it's just very very cool to play mm-hmm. in Montreal um and then Syracuse is just a shit box and I always <laughs> played there played well there and I don't know man the fans are right on top of you there was just something about that place that I just loved it <laughs> That that might have to be the clip right there for my teaser. Syracuse is a shit box, <laughs> but you got to make sure you say like I loved playing there. That's the yeah. thing. Like, I, but it it was man. Like I just I have this thing for old rundown buildings, you know. And they've done everything they can to upgrade it and make it nice now. Yeah, but it's it's old man. It's got you know fans blowing on the American flags in yeah. the, in warm ups. I love those old buildings. Like the United Center is an awesome building but I miss the old Chicago stadium and just what that was, you know, you're, you're walking to your seat and your feet are sick into the floor because of the yep. spilt beer from decades. You know, the, like you said, the fights happening in the stands, uh, there's just something to those old buildings. And yeah, I get that. So th- this is always a fun one to ask people. What's your favorite stick that you've ever used? Oh, I tell you, the, the Bauer Supreme 2Ss I had at the end of my career were probably the best performing sticks, the lightest, the thinnest. Mm-hmm. Um, I could never get the flex right on those, though I still had been trying to convince Bauer to make them more and more flexible. They were mm-hmm. still stiff. And a lot of times people didn't realize that goalie sticks need to flex just like a player stick. Mm-hmm. So I could still shoot with them. I loved them. Don't get me wrong. But I think the best sticks I ever had were Sherwood PMP nine nine five zero the wood ones not the foam course the wood ones from when i was first year junior Mm -hmm. when i was you know 76 17 years old second year junior i could launch the puck with those things now i mean four out of every 12 are really good ones yeah out of the batch but i could fire it i scored a goal with one of them i was the first goalie to score in the north american league i was like my claim to fame and I love those sticks. Still to this day, I love them. They were the perfect flex. They were thin. They, oh God, I still, man, that was the best stick ever made for me. I knew a lot of goalies that use those sticks. And it's funny you mentioned the North American League. They have their showcase at the Super Rink this coming weekend. And uh, I'm going to be going to check it out because Ev from Vaughn sent me a text saying, hey, uh, you want to get together while I'm in town? And I'm going, well, you, I've got my, pads ordered through you guys it's been 11 weeks maybe i'll get lucky and he wants to meet because he's bringing them with him i doubt it but i'm secretly hoping that's why if not yep. i i'm still having a beer with him a nice present. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh it's good so, to be friends with gear reps yeah well and that's a funny one like i didn't know ev before this other than listening to his podcast but uh one of my college teammates runs a goalie school here in the twin cities devon air goaltending and he's gotten some sweet bond pads over the years he said hey i need the number to your rep i'm gonna place an order so he gave me the number and once we place w- once we place the order ev starts texting me like hey because i'm getting custom graphic too like i've waited 21 years i'm not going with your stock graphic and mm-hmm. uh so he starts texting me like right away like we, we got to make sure this is right and everything else so I don't know. It's, it's almost feeling like Evan and I are friends now because of this. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully, uh, fingers crossed. I get it's Christmas day for me later this week. Um, 
So the next question, what is your favorite youth hockey memory? Oh, boy, that's really tough. Um, well, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, like AAA is still youth hockey. We won the Kamloops International Bantam Ice Hockey Tournament uh, when I was 15 in Bantams. And my head, our head coach was Lindsey Middlebrook, who's the man who taught me how to play goal. Mm-hmm. And he, goaltending in St. Louis wouldn't be anywhere without Lindsey Middlebrook. Mm-hmm. Played in the NHL, played for St. Louis University when it was a Division One program. Uh, Lindsay started the first goalie school in St. Louis that was native to the area. Lindsay taught me all the basics, and he was our coach. And damned if we didn't walk up to Canada and Kamloops and win this thing. And we we had no hope going in. People didn't think mm-hmm. we were going to win. And we're one of four American teams there, and we took it. We beat Honey Bake in the final, and it was crazy. Like we want, we got rings. Yeah, like there were fans. Like saw Caleb's Blazer game that night. Like it was crazy, man. And I got to tell you, that was that was pretty unbelievable. Um, I'd say a close second of that would be going to the Pee Wee Quebec tournament when a couple of years before that. That was kind of like my first taste of what it was like to go to Canada. Yeah, you know, French speaking culture, like the whole <laughs> mis- the whole mystique of it, especially being from a place like St. Louis. My grandpa told me they wouldn't feed me if I couldn't speak French. <laughs> So <laughs> he's lying to me. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I, Kamloops was, yeah, Kamloops, what we accomplished. And especially with Lindsay, who just, man, that, that guy means, he means a lot to me. Yeah. And just knowing a few people from the St. Louis area that played hockey, you know, that are our age, he, he has a big impact on St. Louis yeah. hockey and where it's at today. Huge, not just goalies, but the number of players that he coached that went on to division one schools, to major junior, to pro Yep, um, left. He's left a huge footprint in the city. Absolutely. So next question, uh, what's the best chirp you've heard on the ice, off the ice, directed at you, not directed at you from you? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I I can always think of my favorite one was from juniors and it was so simple, but I'd never heard it until that point. And you know, one of our guys had on a full bubble and somebody looked at him, I can't, he's yelling at the other guy on the team. He's like, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Roll your window down. You know, and I, <laughs> for some reason that's always stuck with me. I, I had never heard it. And at the time I thought that was the funniest thing. Um, but, you know, I, I remember once playing against Utica and a player, this was late in my career. I'm 35 or something. And this guy who's probably 20 years old and was down from the Canucks. I'm not going to say who it was. But he's down from the Canucks because he should have been down. Mm-hmm. Really early draft pick who was not playing well. And guy chirps me as I'm skating by him. And I hadn't done anything. And I looked at this guy like, and I, I never chirped anybody, rarely, unless they did it first. And I go, yeah, you can call me whatever, whatever you want, but you're a 20-year-old has-been, dude. And I just, <laughs> I ended up being teammates with him. I don't know if he remembered that. Um, but... I just remember that being like, what? Like, why are you doing this? You're 20, yeah. man. Like, and you're not in the position where you should be chirping people here. And his, his career hasn't been too smooth. I know he's trying to get it to rebound now. I hope it does. But that was that one kind of stuck out of my head. as just like weird, you know? I, I liked when I asked David Hutchins that question. Uh, he said his son's goalie coach at one of the camps looked at him and said, you must be really good at dodgeball. 
I used to use that at goalie camp. You've hit everything but the scoreboard on this ice. When you put the cones out, you know, they just yeah. run the cones over. It's yeah. the same line from, it's actually the line from uh, Days of Thunder that, you know, you've run into yep. everything but this Goodyear blimp. And yeah, we don't have blimps at hockey games. So no. Really no, although I'm surprised we haven't had them at uh, some of the outdoor games. But <laughs> my son, yeah, we we're driving to the uh, state baseball tournament this year and the 3M golf classic was going on. So we drive by this one little regional airport and there's the, Goodyear blimp more waiting. Well, they took off and my son's like, Oh, I wonder why they're here. It's like, well, they're, they're coming to fly over here. Baseball games. So he's like, they are. It's like, no, there's a big golf tournament right down the road. Knucklehead. He's like, Oh yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> but he thought, yeah, they're, they're coming for some 13 U baseball state tournament. It's like, no. doesn't believe anything. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so th- this is a question I always like to ask people. What's the worst post game beer you've had? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I I did really. Yeah, first off, I'm not like a beer guy at all. There are times mm-hmm. where a cold beer is great. Shower yeah. beer, I'm all, after a shower beer after cutting the lawn. I'm all for it. Yeah. Um, the worst. I mean, probably throw it back to college and like. Milwaukee's best light or something like beast light or some just trash yeah. like that. That would definitely fit the bill. Cause I would never slag on anything Bush or, or, you know, like the Bavarian is always in my wheelhouse with Bush light, but mm-hmm. yeah, beast was bad. Natty light. Bleh, like yeah, just all those cheap college ones. were not, we're not, I, my I, thing. I don't like Bud light, Bud lights. Bleh. Give me a Bush light any day. I had some friends that would get Schlitz cause you could get a, 30 pack for 399 in college. And it's like, <laughs> there's a reason they're 399 guys. Yeah. <laughs> Not the best. Uh, so when you tape your stick, do you go heel to toe or toe to heel? Oh, heel to toe. Okay. Of course. You're probably a sociopath. If you go toe to heel. <laughs> You're the second person to say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, very few that I've talked to have said they go toe to heel. Now, Connor Beaupre, the wild e-bug, says he goes toe to heel because he really likes to play the puck and he just feels the puck comes off better that way. And I'm like, hey, I trust you because I can't play the puck. Yeah. Well, Connor's, <laughs> Connor, one, Connor's an awesome dude and so is his yeah. dad, Don. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, I always went heel to toe. That's just the tradition. I don't care. It doesn't matter how you tape yeah. your stick. Just don't make it a big, ugly mess and make sure you tape it regularly. Don't put more tape over the next layer of tape. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I know this one because I've listened to your podcast and some of the other stuff you've been on, but some of my listeners maybe haven't. What's your favorite number to wear and why? Uh, 56. And I wore it because it was my dad's racing number uh, on his cars. And my grandpa adopted 56 later in life to be his hockey number. So my second year pro in Vegas, it dawned on me. I had a revelation that, you know what? 29 has been worn by a lot of goalies. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to try out 56. And I figured I was in Vegas. They'll let me get away with it. And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. And so if, if you ever saw me not wearing 56, it's because the team didn't give me a choice. Yep. Or, <laughs> or in the Dallas organization, they were going to retire it for Sergey Zubov. So um, that was the only one of those I ran into uh, in Ottawa. Magnus pay RV was wearing 56. So aside from that, the only times I didn't get to was when teams had team Wouldn't orders. Yeah. yeah, no, that makes sense. So the last question is my favorite one to ask. What advice do you have for young goaltenders? Have fun. 
It's the first and foremost, the most important thing is to have fun. Um, beyond having fun, because it's simple to say that, it's an oversimplification. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be an amazing skater. And we're not talking about skating to the blue line and back as fast as you can. We're not talking about crossing over. We're talking about being a goalie skater. Yeah. Starts, stops, crisp, precise, sharp skates. No goalie on earth should have a skate sharpening over a half inch. I don't care what your age is. Five eights, no. Half inch or sharper, period. I don't know if that's going to resonate with people. I'm sure I'm going to get hate tweets for that. (laughs) But you can't play goalie without having skates that make you stop so that your feet are square and you're not drifting. Mm -hmm. I think it's critical. And I also think the more I watch for young goaltenders, I think it's don't leave the blue paint. Stay home. I I think there's – so many coaches will tell goalies and they don't know better. Like, Oh, you're a small goalie. You need to play outside the crease. And they have no idea where they are on the angle. They lose track of the net. They have to work twice as hard to go twice the distance to be off angle. Um, but I think really have fun and, and be a great skater. Find somebody who knows what they're doing as a goalie skater and just hammer on it. Learn how to use those edges. I, I like that you mentioned, you know, stay in the blue paint. You know, my goalie coach, Darren McCluskey was his name in youth hockey. Um, he, he was very much, you know, beyond the red, beyond the red uh, line of the goal crease. That, that's where you should always be. Um, and then I started, I, one year for Christmas, I got the Stefan Popa goaltending manuals and his whole thing is you know the horseshoe and he would call out the numbers and you had to close your eyes and visualize where he'd be on the horseshoe and then it was shortly after they came out with the loaf of bread gold crease which was almost like the horseshoe it's like i love the the loaf of bread and i i still when i get to a rink you know look at what kind of crease do they have do they have you know the half circle still i hate those rinks i have the half circle or do they have the loaf of bread and because i just feel my angles are better on those loaves of bread uh, yeah. So, well, before we end, I will, uh, where can folks find you on social media? If they haven't found you already, I kind of question yep. how, how they found this, uh, podcast, but where, <laughs> where can they find you on social media to, uh, digest all of the great goaltending knowledge you share, the great recipes you share and everything else. <laughs> it is. It's always at Mike McKenna 56. My dad's racing number, my number now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, I'm at most active on Twitter, uh, but also really active on Instagram, Instagram, of course, probably more pictures than anything else, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, I hope, uh, I hope everybody enjoys it. I'm pretty open and honest on there. I do like to answer questions and yeah. um, sometimes too, I'll also use my other Twitter handle that's at McKenna in game and I'll live tweet games in season and probably be using that a little bit more often this coming season as well. Yeah. Well, and to prove your point that you're pretty responsive on Twitter, um, I may have badgered you a time or two to get on the podcast. And I don't know if you got tired of me doing so, but I uh, finally, you're like, Hey, yeah, we're just finding do- the right time, man. Yeah. We just had to get it to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So thank you, Mike, for taking time out of your day. I, we probably went longer than I anticipated. Um, so thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome, man. I, it's no surprise. I, I can't stop talking. So I appreciate you having me on. It's always great to talk to people from, especially from our era. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, we all share exactly the same experiences as a kid, all those same, you know, those same memories. And yeah. I, I love taking those trips down memory lane and, and bringing them back to where we are today. 
Yeah, lear- learning how to make proper escape saves and proper two pad stack recovery. I can still do them. You line those pucks at the blue line, and I can give you a skate save. Never use it in a game, but I can still do them. <laughs> I, I did when I was like a peewee and squirt because I didn't know better. But uh, I was talking to Bones from uh, Nashville, and I'm trying to get him up here to uh, do some content on my backyard rink this winter of teaching him how to do proper two pad stack recovery uh in his vintage gear that he's got going because i learned it to that you know repetitive over and over we were taught how to get up so but anyway thank you again it's been fantastic um i i appreciate your time yeah anytime i appreciate it too have a great day thank you It's safe to say Mike and I could have talked for hours simply because of the library of stories he has from his travels in pro hockey. I was thrilled to have Mike on the podcast as a guest. He was one of the top people I had on my list of goalies I wanted to talk to when I first started thinking of hosting a podcast. It took some time, but well worth the wait. I just might have to take him up on his offer to have him on again to hear even more stories. If you haven't already, go listen to his Six Degrees with Mike McKenna podcast, where he shares some of the many stories he has from his playing days while talking to some incredible guests. You can find Mike on Instagram and Twitter at MikeMcKenna56, and on Twitter for live game tweeting on occasion at McKennaIngame. You can always find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube simply by searching for Washed Up Goalie. Visit WashedUpGoalie.com for some great hockey-related content, my beer league hockey video highlights, and of course, all podcast episodes. If you want some wash-up goalie or tendy talk apparel, be sure to visit my Threadless shop by clicking the merchandise link on my website. If you like this podcast, go listen to the BLPA Big Show. It's the OG BLPA Podcast Network show where a couple of beer league players talk beer league hockey, draft experience shenanigans, and exploits from around the game. The show is hosted by Nick Jones and previous tendy talk guests, Trish Dangle. Be sure to check out the full lineup of hockey-related podcasts on the Hockey Podcast Network as well. There are too many to list here, but shows like the Tracking the Storm podcast, the Habs Nightly podcast, and the Keeping Up with the Krakens podcast are all available. I need to thank the band The Zambonis for allowing me to use their music on my podcast. You can download their music on iTunes or listen wherever you stream music from. I'm always working on lining up other goalies to talk to. If you are a goalie or have connections to a goalie who I should talk to, shoot me an email at washedupgoalie39 at gmail.com or send me a DM on social media. Let's not forget, if you are a brand who wants to sponsor the show, be sure to reach out to me. I'd be happy to talk. And finally, if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment on the podcast platform you're listening on. It's a quick action on your part that helps others find Tendy Talk. So until next time, keep your stick on the ice and your body square to the puck.